You're listening to the eFree Lethbridge Podcast. Well, the, the signs of, of change are, are in the air and on the air and in your mailboxes, on your television. I can pretty much guarantee if you own or live in a home that you will soon receive a phone call from a company wanting to clean your ducts. <laughs> that if you have teenage children in sports that they may be receiving calls for, to try out for, uh, for traveling teams. For weeks now, short sleeve shirts and shorts have been on sale. And I've seen, as I've driven down from Calgary, fields full of combines harvesting crops. Why? Well, because as much as we don't want to do it, we need to prepare for a new season. And what is true of nature's seasons is also true of seasons in the life of any given church. A new ministry year is upon us. The last ministry year ended in June, and we've had this summer hiatus to rest and be refreshed, and we intentionally moved from the study of Nehemiah and the talk of transition into a summer study from the book of Psalms and the book Open and Unafraid, where we learned how to pray with the psalmists. But now we are back, and summer is complete, and we are entering into a new ministry year where the transition is still going to be a lot of the focus with the future we hope, future going to include a new lead pastor sometime. But in the meantime, we're going to explore from Nehemiah what we need to do and how we can prepare for this new distinct ministry season that is upon us. How can we prepare for a new season of ministry? Now, since the last time that we talked about Nehemiah was two and a half months ago, I thought that it probably best to bring us up to speed with a quick review of where we had traveled in Nehemiah before the summer, which brings us to where we are now. And then from today's passage, I want us to see two commitments that we can make in order to further and even complete this transition well. Chapters 1 to 6 of Nehemiah are just this sweeping narrative that begins long before the book was ever written. It kind of begins with the destruction of Jerusalem, its walls, its people, its temple decimated by the Babylonians in 686 BC. A lot of the people were killed. Those who, re who remained and could work were taken to Babylon there to serve as slaves. Years later, the Persians overtook the Babylonian Empire and inherited these Jewish slaves, some of whom we would know, like Daniel, for example, and Nehemiah, who was blessed by God to be in leadership as well because he was promoted to the place of highest trust as a cupbearer to the Persian king. And it was while he was cupbearer of the Persian king that God put in Nehemiah's heart the desire to rebuild the walls and the people of his home city of Jerusalem. Rebuild the walls and reestablish their identity. And the king, or God further moved in the king's heart so that uncharacteristically 
He would provide Nehemiah with the time and the energy and the resources and the letters of permission that he would need in order to rebuild those walls. So Nehemiah led the people to build, all of the people. It didn't matter if they were, if they were butchers, bakers, or candlestick makers, everyone was to build the wall while facing down threats they built. In the face of mockery, they built. While there were sin issues that had to be dealt with in the community, they built so that in chapter 6, verse 15, it says, the wall was completed on the 29th day of the month of Elul in, and they could say, in only 52 days. It was a remarkable feat. The physical structure of the wall had been restored. And yet the work of reforming the people to make them the people of God again was far from over. The walls were built, but now was the time to reshape their hearts. And our text demonstrates for us today two commitments that they made to reshape their hearts as they transitioned into becoming more the people of God. Two commitments that we can make to grow our hearts in transition so that we can move to ever-increasing heart health, that which must, must precede preparation for a next lead pastor. So I'm going to call you to two commitments this morning, just so you know. Two commitments for this ministry year. Both will target heart growth, as will next week. Pastor John Chalmers, whom some of you may know, he's the lead pastor of the Efree Church in Brooks. He served together with me when I was on staff at Bethany Chapel before he took the lead role at Brooks. And I remember his excitement one year about being able to attend an event that would celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. You may know that more than 500 years ago now, the scriptures were locked up. They were kept from the people. Whenever they were read, largely to an illiterate group of people, they were read in Latin. So that's two steps removed from understanding. The priest could have said, merzy dotes and dozy dotes and little lambsy divies in Latin, and the people would have no idea that they were not saying in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But Martin Luther, the reformer, in his book Table Talk, wrote this. While the Romish church stood, the Bible was never given to the people in such a shape that they could clearly, understandably, surely, and easily read it as they can now in the German translation, which, thank God, we have prepared here at Wittenberg. Because of a remarkable turn of events, the Word of God could be in the hands of the literate to read for themselves and be read to the illiterate in such a way that they could hear it and understand it for themselves. And the printing presses could not keep up with the desire and demand of the people who wanted the Word of God so that they could read it or hear it in a way that they could understand it. And so it's interesting then that 
in our text, after the wall is completed in chapter 6, and after they take a census of everybody who returned in chapter 7, that chapter 8 begins with a report of a similar Reformation-like hunger on the part of these Jews. It reads that all the people gathered as one man in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which had been given to Israel. This was a grassroots hunger of the common people to hear and to understand the word of God. It was a people movement. In fact, that word is 13 times people in 12 verses. And did you notice that it said all the people? It might be a bit of a generalization, but not necessarily much of one. Most didn't care that it was harvest time, even though it was. Most didn't care that traveling team tryouts were happening, probably because they weren't. <laughs> Most didn't care that it was opening Sunday of NFL season, which today is. No. Most chose to gather to hear and to understand the Word of God. They gathered to basically hear preaching. The Word read, explained, and applied. Like the Reformation hunger, the people of Jerusalem wanted to have access to the Word of God so that they could understand it. I mean, they had built a wall for protection. They had built a wall in order to form themselves as a distinctive community. But it had been so long since they had ever heard the law read to them that they had no idea anymore who they were, nor how they should behave because of who they were. So their first partial commitment that we see is a commitment to hear the Word of God with a desire to understand it. We notice that Nehemiah appeared to waste no time after finishing the wall before he built a platform and put a podium on top of it that would be higher than the people, right? Which would elevate the word of God above the people, symbolically representing that it was higher than the people and over the people, which it is. And it would make it much easier for them to listen to practically. So in verse 2, and notice how often the word all is used here. As there, the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the month. And he read it before the square, which is, it was in front of the water gate, early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women and all who could understand. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now, we need to consider the length of tireless attentiveness with which they listen to the law. The length of their tireless attentiveness. Verse 3 says that they were attentive from early morning until midday. That's what, five words which could, could just fly right over your head or could make you go, hmm. It made me go, hmm. I'll assume that early morning means about 40 to 45 minutes after sunrise. Breakfast done, dishes in the dishwasher, teeth brushed, hair combed, 
lunches packed, kids, young kids to the sitters, dogs to the walkers, or to the spa, and a short jaunt across the square to the water gate. Now, this last Wednesday in Jerusalem, sunrise was at 6.17 a.m. So, if that was the same in Nehemiah's time, which it could well have been, that would mean 45 minutes later would be 7 a.m. that they had gathered to read. And it said that they listened until midday, which I would assume that midday would be somewhere like in the middle of the day, right? Because <laughs> that's when it is. So then you need to know when sunset is to figure out just how much time we're talking about here. And sunset last Wednesday was 6.57 p.m. If they gathered at 7 in the morning and it ended at 7 at night, we have 12 hours of day. Midday would mean 6 hours of attentive reading. The people listened from morning until midday, six hours. Can you imagine? Those listening were not listening to the Word of God like the, the teacher in the Charlie Brown Christmas. No. Attentive to the Word of God. And the content that they listened to, I'll tell you, it would have been scintillating stuff. For example, in Leviticus 11, these are the creatures which you may eat from all of the animals which are on the earth. Whatever divides the hoof, thus making split hooves, and chews the cud, or among those which split the hoof, the camel, for it chews its cud, it does not divide the hoof, it is unclean to you. Likewise, the stephan, whatever that is, for though it chews the cud, it doesn't divide the hoof, it is unclean to you. And the rabbit also, for though it chews the cud, it does not divide the hoof, it is unclean to you. And the pig, for though it divides the hoof, thus makes a split hoof, it doesn't chew the cud, it is unclean to you. You shall not eat its flesh or touch its carcass, it is unclean to you. Now, isn't that just gripping? <laughs> huh? Exodus 27. You shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side there should be hangings for the court of fine twisted linen, 100 cubits long for the side, and its pillars shall be 20, and 20 sockets of bronze and hooks and pillars, and their bands shall be silver. Likewise, the north side of the length there shall be hangings, 100 cubits long, and 20 pillars, and their bands shall be silver. And it goes on to describe how the east and west walls of the court of the tabernacle were to be made. Is anyone interested? It's in Exodus 27, if you want to go there. How many of you zoned out during this exciting material? maybe caught yourself in a half yawn. They were attentive for six hours of material just like this. But what is it that caused them to be attentive through hungry stomachs at noon and the heat of the sun at the height of the day? Well, what they had come to realize is that they had lost track of what it meant to be the people of God. 
Babylonian and Assyrian behavior and thinking patterns had seeped into their lives, so they really didn't know what it meant to be the people of God anymore. They had, they had not obeyed God for years because they didn't even know what obedience meant or looked like. But as they listened, they recognized their need to get back on track. And so there was a desperate need to hear the Word of God to show them how to get back on track again, and they hung on every word for six hours. Wow. Verse 5 says that when Ezra opened the book, they stood for the entire reading. I can understand why it might be tough for some to stand on a slant here when we read for six minutes. But they stood for six hours and listened during the hottest part of the day, potentially. Why? Because they knew that what was being read was the word of God. They knew that what was being read were the words of life for them who would define who they were and how they should behave because of who they were. It was a symbolic act of reverence for what they believed to be the word of God. For us to stand before we read acknowledges that we believe that what is being read is from God, not some novel or knucklehead somewhere. Notice the importance also of clear understanding. The narrator says both in verses 2 and 3 that those who could understand were listening attentively. And then verse 7 says that Ezra, as Ezra was reading, the Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in place. So the picture is of all these people standing in place and Levites and others circulating throughout the crowd so that if there's a question like, what is a Stephan? They can go over and answer that question, the goal being clear understanding. Verse 8 is the fourth and final time the idea is hit. As the Levites translated what was being read to give the sense so that it says they understood the reading. Full attentiveness, total understanding. That was their commitment. Now, let's think about this here for a minute. Just take a step back. Believe it or not, it is actually possible for you to write your own book without an invitation from a publisher. It's more credible and potentially less self-serving to be invited to write, but you don't need an invitation in order to be published now. It's, you may know, it's called self-publishing. It's been around for about 10 years started with Amazon, Kindle, and Kobo, and now there are a bunch of other independent services that allow you to do that. At the beginning, you could make an arrangement where you would get between 35 to 70% of the royalties, and Amazon, for example, would get the rest. It's a, <laughs> it's a great way to pad your resume by saying that you've been published, as long as you can avoid the awkward question of, whether anyone actually asked you to write anything at all, or whether, <laughs> how many books have you sold to people outside of your immediate family and very close friends? 
But what was fascinating to me about this is that Kindle and Kobo could not only track how many downloads there was of your book if it was in an ebook form, they could also track scroll depth. In other words, how much of the book that you have written and somebody else has downloaded is actually being read? Which, if you're self-published, could either be yay or oh dear, right? For example, an article written in December, December 10th, 2014, in The Guardian in the UK, Alison Flood wrote this. The Goldfinch, novel, a sprawling 880-page novel by Donna Tartt, won the Pulitzer Prize in 2014. Like, that is the big prize, right? The book became a bestseller in America and in Britain, but according to research from Kobo, the major British e-book seller, most of the people who bought the book didn't finish it. Since its release, only 44% of those who bought the book, read the book. Michael Tamlin, the president and chief content officer of Kobo, explained, a book's position in the bestseller list may indicate it's bought, but that's not the same as it being read. A lot of people have multiple novels on the go at any time, so people may wait days, months, or even until the next year to finish certain titles. And Many exercise the inalienable rights of a reader to set a book down that doesn't hold their interest. So let me ask you two questions. First one's easy, and then there's a second one. What's the best-selling book of all time? The Bible every year. Second question, what's your scroll depth? Ah, that's where he was going. Goldfinch is 44%. Or have you perhaps exercised the reader's inalienable right to set it down because it just doesn't hold your interest anymore? Let me tell you, it should. The Word of God is no less essential to remind us of who we are to be in a culture that constantly tries to redefine us today. It is no less necessary to remind us of how we ought to behave when sin is condoned constantly today than it was for Nehemiah's Jews. Six hours of attentiveness. 100% scroll depth. A commitment to the Word of God read and preached so as to understand it because it and it alone should shape your thinking and your behaving. And a worship service, whether here or online, ought to be a top priority in your life because that is where the Word of God is read and explained and applied in such a way that it can transform your life. You know, since 2004, I have been able, I've had the privilege, amazing privilege, of teaching pastors 
and lay people the word of God in places where they're persecuted for owning it. They're persecuted for teaching it. They're thrown in prison for having it. And yet these students come and they sit on the edge of their seats for six hours a day to listen to me, which isn't great, me through a translator because they want to hear and understand what the Word of God says and what it means for their lives. Why? Because it is their life. They don't know how to think without it. They don't know how to live without it. They crave it. And honest, I could teach from 8 in the morning, take some lunch breaks, but I could go till 2 in the morning, and there would still be this unbelievable attentiveness and passion to hear it. And I'll admit that sometimes it is super challenging to come home and to not be judgmental and angry about Canadian Christians who, to me, don't seem to share a modicum of the passion for the Word of God that these brothers and sisters do. Because sometimes it's just not that precious to us. We don't necessarily think we need it to determine our thinking and behaving. We've got other sources. There's other books, there's podcasts, there's pop culture. We've got other sources that we may hold in higher regard. And, I mean, that's really your choice. But the honest choice is this. This is either the word of God worth hearing and obeying, or let's just come clean and stop pretending we think it is. Right? I mean, that's the honest choice. Stop pretending because it's cowardly. It's hypocritical to do that. I just know these Jews, they listened attentively for six hours to the word explained or preached to them so that they could understand, so that they could fit, change their, their worlds and their lives to fit the word of God instead of twisting the scriptures to make them fit their lives. That is a sign of a people who want a new heart to move forward as the people of God. Attentive hearing of the word of God read and explained in order to gain understanding of how to think and live is the sign of a church who wants to move forward well into the next ministry year. And dare I say, it is a sign of a church who wants to get ready for the next lead pastor. I don't know a single evangelical pastor who wants to come into a church that does not take the word of God seriously into a group who are just kind of meh about it all. They want to come into a, they want to come into a church that's passionate, being shaped by the Word of God. It happened back then. Powerful how they reacted to the, just reading an explanation of the law. They wept. The end of verse 9 says that all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Why would they weep? 
because they hadn't understood how far away they were from what God wanted them to be. And when they realized the span, they grieved because they were so far off. They, they, they wept. But amidst the weeping, interesting, Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites said to the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Don't mourn or weep. And instead, they instructed the people to go home and feast, and if you got neighbors around who don't have food, give them skip the dishes. Like, we're going we're gonna to feast today. In verse 11, the people calmed the people down, saying, Be still, for the day is holy, do not grieve. And in verse 12, the people celebrated a great festival, and notice why, because they understood the words which had been known to them, made known to them. A great feast, because they had been able to understand God's word and what it meant. Can you see the contrast, potentially, between, let's have a feast because we've just listened to and understood the word of God for our lives, and, amen, service done. What's for lunch? Huh? The first commitment to a healthy spiritual heart is a commitment to attentively hear the word of God, to understand it, and then to celebrate that God has actually spoken to you and to me. Now quickly, there's a second commitment that we should make as we enter a new ministry year. We see it in the last part of the chapter, and it's a commitment to have total obedience replace partial obedience. A commitment to have total obedience to the Word of God replace partial obedience. I get it from verses 13 to 18. This event happened during the seventh month of the Jewish calendar, which is full of a lot of events. New Year's, Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths. And verses 13 to 18 seem to indicate that it had been celebrated, but only in partial fashion, so partial obedience. You can deduce this from verses 13 and 14 because the next day after the big celebration, uh, the heads of households gathered for further instruction and they discovered that the sons of Israel were to live in booths during the Feast of Booths. Which kind of makes sense, but not to them. So they were enjoying the feasting part without the outdoor crude living in a tent-like structure under the moon on the hard ground part of the event. But in verse 15, we see full obedience to the truth revealed, as again the leaders help apply the word to the people, saying to them, go out in the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. We don't know what the booths look like, but the point wasn't so much their design as it was the experience of living in them, which was full obedience to God's command rather than partial obedience. So that, in verse 17, the entire assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel, this is unbelievable, had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua. 
son of none to that day. And notice the final phrase, and there was great rejoicing. Great rejoicing, why? Because total obedience that had not happened for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years happened that day. In full obedience to what God reveals brings great joy. Full obedience in the place of partial obedience. Part of what it means to transition a congregation well in order to receive a new lead pastor is to restore the hearts of people wherever they need to be realigned. And these are the sorts of commitments that come from Nehemiah's experience that I'm calling you to today. To commit yourselves to attentively hear the word of God in order to understand it and apply it to your lives and celebrate the fact that he's speaking to you. And second, to commit yourselves to replace any partial obedience of God's word with total obedience. Now I know in, in some ways this was probably heavy and convicting but anything you heard went through me first. So I know that. But did you notice that both of these commitments had a result of joy? The commitment to attentively listen to the word of God and celebrate it resulted in a great feast and the commitment of full obedience in place of partial obedience resulted in rejoicing. So the commitments that I'm calling you to this morning are not arduous. They're good. They will restore your souls as they restore your hearts. So I want to invite you to join together to celebrate in song as the worship team comes before we eat together because today we had the privilege of hearing the word of God read and read well, and hopefully explained well, when millions upon millions of people in the world can only dream of the possibility of just hearing it. We got to hear it, and let's celebrate that. Thanks for listening to the E-Free Lethbridge Podcast. We'll see you next week.